0: Hello, welcome to The Cutting Room, the movie show from All The Right Movies. I'm John, and with me, it's our very own Bert and Ernie. That's Westy. Hello. And Matt. (laughs) Hee-haw. Wrong Wrong character, but brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was Christmas Jumpers this week,
1: like Shaggy. Yeah, mine's in the wash.
0: Yeah, Sorry. I do have mine on but it's so cold I have to have the hoodie on as well <laughs> Such a shame Looks like you're like going to a funeral, you do Well yeah <laughs> Black Christmas yeah, yeah. Always be prepared, that's, that's my motto. <laughs> well this week, despite what would have you believe It's Christmas And we're mm-hmm. going all the way back to 1946 To talk Jimmy Stewart And spread general yuletide cheer Possibly mm.
1: Let's mm-hmm. try it.
0: As we bring you the making of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life Before we do that though, just to let everybody know that All The Right Movies is a YouTube channel and what you're listening to now is the audio podcast version of the latest episode of our YouTube show called The Cutting Room. The original video version along with many other episodes and videos is available on YouTube so please head over to our channel to watch and subscribe. We actually started out as a podcast, and you can access our full archive of over 120 podcast episodes on our website, alltherightmovies.com, or by signing up to become an All The Right Movies patron at patreon.com forward slash All The Right Movies. Patrons also gain access to loads of other benefits as well, including an exclusive video episode of The Cutting Room every month, chosen by and created specifically for our patrons. So, as you can see, there's loads from all the right movies to keep you busy. So, please check out YouTube and Patreon. But for now, it's back to the film. So, Westy, yeah. why are we covering this one?
1: It's the ultimate Christmas film, isn't it? It's the. Well, first of all, before we start, which version are we covering?
0: The black and white one.
1: Good, because the colour <laughs> one is atrocious it's yeah. a completely different <laughs> I really.
0: thought that I'd oh. missed the directors cut something
1: ridley has got me yeah it's, a, it's four hours long <laughs> absolutely massive ending yeah yeah it's just it's the ultimate it's the ultimate feel Good Christmas film and it's turned into a tradition now I think for so many people and it wasn't mm. uh, it always has been a tradition for me and my family to watch it you know it's a Christmas Eve film we all sit around you always have to watch it. it's a wonderful life and you know everyone's kind of bought into it and it's more relevant now I think that than it ever has been I think it's It's just such a brilliant film so beautifully acted so beautifully shot so beautifully realized and universal and it works so well across the board it's fantastic so yeah excited to talk about
0: yeah well i didn't see it's a wonderful life when i was a kid when i was a kid i tended to be drawn to animations around christmas like how the grinch stole christmas the nightmare before christmas the snowman obviously Mm -hmm. there was a great tom and jerry cartoon i used to love called the night before christmas
1: yeah i remember that one yeah (laughs) oh yeah
0: it's a wonderful life though. I think I'd stayed away from it probably because it was black and white, which probably put me off as a kid. Yeah. The same with Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, which is excellent. Yeah. But when I watched It's a Wonderful Life as a teenager, I thought it was great. Mm. I've seen it many times since that first viewing, so looking forward to getting into how we feel about it now. And it's a Christmas episode, so way better to go than It's a Wonderful Life. Absolutely. A true Christmas classic. So it should be great, hopefully.
2: Yep, yeah. yeah, should be.
0: And Matt, it's a
2: wonderful life. Is it wonderful? It is still wonderful. It's a very special film. I think I first saw it when I was probably about 10 or 11. I didn't quite get it, to be honest. I think I was a bit too young to really understand what I was seeing. But then I watched it a few years older and it clicked. And it, it's a very rare film because the older I get, the more I get out of it. Yeah, and mm. it absolutely is part of Christmas, like Bessie says, the cinema screen. so I, I do try to see it at the times i cinema whenever I can, and whenever I've been, it's always sold out. And normally I would hate this, but but when the film finishes, there's a round of applause at the end. Yeah, and I think for a film wow. that's that's nearly eighty years old to have that kind of effect, to still have that popularity, to be that kind of communal experience. I think that says that there's something like pretty extraordinary about it. And yeah, it is a tradition, yeah. like. If I don't watch Lethal Weapon this Christmas, that's fine. If I don't watch Elf, that's fine. But It's a Wonderful Life is the one I have to make the time for at some point. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: All right then, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. We're talking It's a Wonderful Life. Christmas Eve and All in Bedford Falls is not well contemplating ending it all on a snowy bridge, banker George Bailey is saved when his guardian angel, Clarence, shows up to teach him the important things in life and the true meaning of Christmas. we stepping into Christmas this year, Westy? Always. Hop's getting jumped, you know me.
1: (laughs) How many puns are you going to get in here, John? Just, you know...
0: It's a Wonderful Life was directed by Frank Capra, written by Capra, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, produced by Liberty Pictures, distributed by RKO Radio Pictures and stars, James Stewart as George, Donna Reed as Mary Hatch Bailey and Henry Fravers as Clarence. So, as we do on The Cutting Room, we're getting into It's a Wonderful Life by talking about the direction, the writing, the cast, our highlights, and then we're going to rate the film out of 10, aren't we? Yes, we are. are. So here we go, a couple of sea bombs I don't mean you two, Christmas, (laughs) and Capra. Capricorn. The director of It's a Wonderful Life was Francesco Rosario Capra, Frank Capra for short. Mm -hmm. Before It's a Wonderful Life, he was already a Hollywood legend, a winner of three Best Director Oscars for these. So was Francesco's work here as director of It's a Wonderful Life, Matt?
2: I think it's it's still his great highlight, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, better than anything he did before, and I don't think he bettered it after. And it should never be overlooked as how dark Capra lets this film become, which is why that ending is as emotionally uplifting as it is, because Capra takes you to the depths. And it, it's worth remembering, like, everyone knows the plot, but about it, you know, the character is driven to the point of suicide on Christmas Eve. And that scene on the bridge, which looks incredible, the snow coming down, the churn and water, which looks so cold and so mm-hmm. dark. It's all so bleak. You watch it and you go, hang on, hang on, hang on. Why does everyone call this a happy film? <laughs> when does the happy <laughs> bit come along? And the standout scene for me though, in terms of how dark Kappa lets it go, is when George comes home on Christmas Eve after he's lost the money. Like when he's hugging yeah. his youngest and he can't stop crying, that is tough to watch. But Stewart then just times the rest of that outburst so well with everything that's gone on for him over the years, he's like a simmering pot on the stove, isn't he? And this is when he finally boils over. George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, draw You call this a
0: happy family. Why do we have to have all
2: these kids? You can see it's all coming to a head, and I said at the top, I'll see this at the cinema, like, a few times. And when he smashes that table to pieces, you can hear a pin drop. It's absolute silence. You know, mm. it's lost none of its impact. And the expression on his face as he's doing it, you know, contorted in rage and fury, It's horrific. Like, the only person who's had a worse Christmas Eve is probably Phoebe Cates and Gremlins. And
1: that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus.
2: You know, it's so (laughs) dark, it's so bleak. And Capra knows how to use that. And I think the last interesting thing about the scene, is something I didn't notice for ages, but when George smashes that table up, it's full of diagrams and models of buildings. So he clearly still has that passion in his dreams. And that's what he takes his anger out on. And ultimately, I think it's cap- at its best as gauging the emotion in every scene so well, particularly the darker aspects of it. And the other thing I find interesting is how this film became as popular as it did, because it was made by Liberty Films. And when they went under, they were bought out by Paramount. And the film just gathered dust for years until 1974, mm. when they forgot to renew the copyright on it. And this meant the film passed into public domain. And that means TV stations could air for free. But that in turn, that enhanced the critical opinion of it and people kind of came back to it. And by the 80s, that's when it was seen as the Christmas classic that it is today. And I have since renewed the copyright and it's broadcast every Christmas Eve by NBC in America and Channel 4 in the UK. And I watch it most years
0: when it's on Channel 4. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I think it's pretty masterfully directed from Capra. Career-defining performances from pretty much every cast member and Capra's control of the tone, I think, is excellent. At times, it's playing as a comedy. Excuse me. Excuse you for what? I burped. At other times, it's playing as a really dark drama. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. And then at the end, it suddenly flips to be like a Christmas fantasy. You've never been born. You don't exist. And at no point is it ever jarring. And it should be because it changes so rapidly so much. It's one of the best controls of tone I think I've ever seen. For me, it's a wonderful life in terms of Objective filmmaking stands head and shoulders above its peers. I mean, you can't really compare to Die Hard to be fair <laughs> or Batman Returns. You could try, you can <laughs> try, <die>. Cobble Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the few Christmas classics that would still be a classic if it wasn't set at Christmas. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's like yeah. the fairy tale of New York of movies, yeah. and it's Capra's film top to bottom, superb work. From Fan Capra, I think. Yeah. And Westy, what about you, Capra, on this?
1: Yeah, I think it's just the visual flair that he brings to this and the way that he, he kind of breaks so many rules. I mean, he, that freeze frame at the start was unheard of. Audiences could yeah. be sitting there going, What the fuck? What'd you stop it for? This was mm. 13 years before 400 blows. This was 23 years before Butch and Sundance did it in the ending. Mm. And it's 44 years before Goodfellas. And he does he just does it flawlessly as if it's just normal Brilliant, and it's, yeah. it's, it's Brilliant. beautiful. Yeah. And another thing is he just breaks the fourth wall. I mean, I know that was done in the great train robbery famously, but the way he does it here, it's just, he's so small in the frame and he uses that depth and he runs towards the camera. And George is just breaks the phone. You must be sitting there going, whoa, right, okay, this adds to it. It's just masterfully done. That's absolutely amazing. You know, it's all these little things where he's just yeah. putting it in there and it's subliminal. It's just so, so beautifully done and so beautifully realised. And you know when Clarence is talking to him, when they're first coming out and they're drying off the clothes and you've got the cl- the clothesline going across, hmm. which is, which simulates heaven and earth, as far as I can see. You've got George who's on Earth underneath the clothesline. You've got Clarence standing over the top and he's yeah. underneath the light which is almost like a halo. It's just subliminally beautifully done and you're yeah. watching you go, fuck me, that's amazing. And there's loads of bits all the way through it. I could talk about this for about three hours just on that. It is that good. <laughs> yeah. And it's still... Astonishing that this came out in 1947 for me. It's Hmm. ridiculous. Well, 1946, sorry. But in 1947, the year after it came out, the FBI issued a memo, have you heard about this? I've got it here written down. Uh, Calling It's a Wonderful Life a potential communist infiltration of the motion picture industry. It's rather (laughs) obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to sources, is a common trick used by communists. It's like, (laughs) just leave it alone. That's how good it is.
0: (laughs) A common trick. Always casting Lionel Barrymore as Scrooge type figures. These communists. (laughs) Bloody commies. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how many people know this, but Capra actually enlisted a fight in World War II, which was mm. at the peak of Scream when that, when that broke out. Yeah. And after the war, he set up Liberty Films with two other directors, George Stevens and William Wiley, who'd also been in World War II. And they set that Liberty Films up with the intention that they could make movies without any studio interference whatsoever. So Liberty then signed a nine-picture distribution deal with RCO Pictures, and they had the screenplay called The Greatest Gift, which Capra read wanted to do it immediately as his first film, supported for $10,000. Yeah,
1: didn't Wilder get shot in the left ear, and that's where George's injury comes from. That's the influence. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, he got shot when they are over there, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. nice. Didn't know yeah, that yeah. Yeah. But, again, to get this across, Capra did have a reputation of being pretty intense on set. Not like, you know, William Friedkin intense, but pretty close. <laughs> 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 And there were a few problems between him and some of the members of the crew And It's a Wonderful Life. We'll get into some more of them later because there was quite a few. (laughs) And the composer on the film was Dimitri Tjomkin. Tjomkin and Capra had an existing long-term relationship, but that didn't stop Capra replacing some of his music. So Capra wasn't keen on some of the musical cues that Tionkin came up with, so he replaced them with stock music from the RKO library, which is outrageous. <laughs> in the drugstore sequence at the start, Tionkin composed music for it, not knowing that Capra had already decided not to use music for it. Now, I'd love to hear what that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've got yeah. no idea. <laughs> 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 and Tionkin was furious about all of this, so obviously, and then the two of them fell out as a result. And in his autobiography, Tionkin called It's a Wonderful Life a scissors job. which, you know, from his point of view, it probably was.
0: Yeah. That autobiography is called Please Don't Hate Me because Tjomkin had a reputation for when giving feedback to a director, he'd always start by saying... Please don't hate me, but it's shit. But, it's yeah.
2: shit. <laughs> but tis his job.
1: Yeah, i love to see Tiongkin on Aliens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it's as Wesley says, Capra did fall out with a lot of people making this, which considering yeah. the film is a bit bizarre. You'd think everyone would just yeah. be happy, of but no. So... One instance is the three DPs on the film, because first off, the <laughs> first hire was Victor Milner, who was hugely experienced. He got fired after a few weeks because Capra just wasn't happy with the work he was delivering. So all of Milner's work had to be shot. So he turned to Joseph Walker, who he'd collaborated on uh, many times before, about 20 times. Yeah. Halfway through, Capra asked him to like the scene a different way. And Walker just said, no, no, I'm not doing that. This turned into a huge argument <laughs> on set. So Kappa, t- Kappa turned to Walker's assistant, Joseph Byrock, and said, can you shoot it the way I want? And Byrock shamelessly went, yeah, I can. He's assistant as well. Yeah. assistant. And Byrock outrageous. just took over. And that's yeah. why the Sioux credited DPs, outrageous behavior. Yeah, D- no Joseph, that,
1: Do you reckon <laughs> Clarence was like uncomfortable with the lighting, and that's why he shouted Joseph so many times. Oh, Joseph! Joseph! <laughs> he doesn't know which one he's talking to. Joseph! <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, for all the peace on earth, goodwill to war men message of It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. Capra sure went out of his way to piss everybody off when he was making it.
1: Mental. It's a shitty crew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, to finish on Frank Capra, I've got a quote from the man himself, so get a load of this. Mate. On It's a Wonderful Life, Capra said, I thought it was the greatest film I ever made, in fact, I thought it was the greatest film anybody ever made. <laughs> it's probably, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, steady on, Frank. <laughs> well, you need that kind of confidence.
1: We're still watching it and clapping now, eight years later, so I think yeah, you might true. be right.
0: <laughs> the credited writers on It's a Wonderful Life are Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett and Frank Capra. Goodrich and Hackett were a wife and husband writing team who had already been Oscar nominated for The Thin Man in 1934 and its sequel after The Thin Man in 1936. And Frank Capra, this was his first screenplay writing credit. Didn't stop calling all the shots though. Blimey. (laughs) (laughs) So a pretty accomplished writing team on It's a Wonderful Life then.
1: Does it show, Westy? I think it really does. I think this is, is one of the tightest screenplays and tightest stories I've ever seen. There's such a set-up and payoff for everything. The way he sets up the, the bar at Martini's and then it's Nick's and then he, everything that happens has these payoffs, and they're really emotional and every time you see one you want to punch the air and I think that kind of writing is really, really rare and people have tried to match it and they've never touched it. And with this being so personal as well, I mean, you can see it is capra has taken a lot of inspiration from his own life so harry becomes an engineer and george's friend sam works in plastics these both come from capra's own education in chemical engineering the martinis who i've mentioned who own their own bar are based on capra's own family who emigrated from sicily in 1903 and in the film we we'll see a goat which i always thought was weird in the back of the car <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that uh, yeah. but like capra it means goat in italian which is fantastic. Yeah, Charles yeah. Dickens <sighs> in A Christmas Carol is clearly an influence and Potter's clearly Scrooge, you know, yeah. this greedy, heartless miser and yeah. that's always in there. You know, George being shown Bedford Falls would have been like if he wasn't born. I think that's just such a better idea than what Dickens came up with. (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant. (laughs) It's a better idea. (laughs) No ghosts, just nothing. Like, if he didn't exist, that's more terrifying than being shown what you've done and you've forgotten about because he remembers everything and it's taken away from him and that's even more harrowing. I think it's it's fucking brilliant.
0: It is brilliant. Like Frank Cross as well. He's the oh, Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Someone wants to make The Night the Reindeer died for real. <laughs> I'll watch that like Lee <laughs> <laughs> Majors! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the writing here, they've got a lot to cram in in 130 minutes. The life of George Bailey. So the structure kind of focuses on the big key moments of his life. We go from yeah. saving Harry to meeting Mary to getting married. And when that sort of thing's done in films, I normally don't like it because it often means there's a lot of coincidences that have to happen. Mm. But here, it works brilliantly. And I think the reason it works so well is because of what I see as being the main theme of the film, which is helping others. All the way through the film, George sacrifices himself to help others, but every time he does, he's punished for it. Mm -hmm. He saves Harry and loses his hearing in his left ear. He saves Mr. Gower and gets a beating for it. He stops Potter taking over the building in loan and has to give up college. He carries on managing the building in loan so Harry can accept the job offer and has to give up on travelling the world. The message for the first two acts seems to be, help others, and you'll basically ruin your life. Yeah. But then Clarence comes along, he shows George what Bedford Falls would be like without him, and George sees just how much value his life has, and then we get the end with the town folk. They help George because of all the times he's helped them, basically. So at that point, the message changes. It becomes, you should help others, because it gives your life value, which is what Harry means when he says,
1: To my big brother George, The richest man in town.
0: (laughs) That theme drives every decision that the writers make from start to finish, and to me, that's the message that the film tells us. It's not just your standard Christmas movie message of help others, it explores it like good films do, and I think that message is the reason people keep coming back to the film every year. Mm. The writing here is fantastic, easily as good as Jingle All the Way for me.
2: Right, Matt, you agree with that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it just needed Roboman in there, didn't it? Turbo Man, oh wear Matt? Turbo <laughs> <Sorry. Come> Man, <laughs> come on. Turbo Man. <laughs> well, schoolboy era?
1: Turbo Man.
2: Yeah, I think it's excellent writing. I really, really love the screenplay. What stands out to me though is to look at it, the structure is actually quite strange because the Pottersville sequence is the bit probably everyone remembers first, but it's only in the last third we get to see that and we yeah. start off mm-hmm. in heaven. But all the way through, it still feels very grounded. You know, when Clowns just introduce himself properly, you don't think, oh, well, this has got ridiculous now an Angel. And the other aspect of the writing that stands out for me, which I think is really important is for all of the good things that George does in the film, he's still not portrayed as a saint. You get that brilliant yeah. scene at the train station when Harry's returned home with his wife and that job offer and George has that moment and it's all on Stewart's face which is an amazing bit of acting where he's thinking I could tell Harry to take this job or mm. should I make him do what he promised to do years ago and let me get away for a few years let me live my life for a bit you can see the conflict in him he, he isn't doing it just to be you know a nice guy he does it because it's the right thing to do. So. The writing does show that George can be bitter at times, he can be resentful, he holds a grudge, he has a temper. He's not a perfect man, which I think just makes him a much more interesting protagonist for this film. Yeah, makes him a human being, doesn't it? It does, totally makes him human. And I think the main way you see this is how he treats Sam Rainwright throughout the film. You know, Mm -hmm. he kind of takes Mary away from him. He treats him like a bit bit of a dick, to be honest, and I think that emphasises that George isn't a saint in this film. I think excellent pop, but the character writing for George in particular is fantastic. It's hard to be
1: made with someone who introduces himself as a donkey, though. I'm Not going to take him anywhere. Are you? Yeah. To be mate, Sam. Fucking <laughs> Christ, Can you just rein it in? He needs to grow up. Yeah. Up. He's just he just hit lucky, and he's like, he's got women all around him. He's not bothered when he has that phone call when he's yeah, in New York. He's like, just fine." Yeah. Having said all that, though, "It's a Wonderful Life" is actually based on a novel. The novel was called "The Greatest Gift" and written by. Uh, an author called Philip Van Doran Stern in 1939. He actually struggled to sell it to publishers, and after being rejected a fair few times, he eventually turned the story into a 24-page 20, Christmas card, <laughs> printed 200 <laughs> printed two hundred copies and sent them to family and friends in 1943. Now, that's World War II, right? And Imagine getting a 200-page Christmas card. Oh, for fuck's sake, what's you talking about? Just two's enough. Too long. That yeah. Too long. I'm not. Nobody read it, obviously. Just send him, send him a telegram. Yep, that's yeah. fine, that one. Like, send him 25 grand just to shut the fuck up. <laughs>
2: yeah, we've already mentioned Capra falling out with D.P.'s and Chomkin, mm-hmm. but he also fell out with Goodrich and Hackett, who didn't get on with them at all. Goodrich actually said, that horrid man, he just couldn't wait to get writing it all by himself. And when Hackett and Goodrich were writing the script, Capra was taking their work, rewriting it behind their backs with another writer called Joe Swirlin, and Dorothy Parker as a consultant. And Albert Hackett then said, "This outrageous? Albert Hackett then said, <laughs> then said he's, he's a very arrogant son of a bitch. You don't call Frances my dear woman and get away with it. Furious. <laughs> <feel laughs> Massive sexist as well, obviously. Yeah. <laughs>
0: really patronising. <laughs> Well, the first writers who worked on the screenplay were Clifford Odette, Mark Connolly and Dalton Trumbo, who all wrote separate scripts. In Trumbo's draft, George Bailey was a politician who tried to commit suicide after losing an election. And Clarence showed him Bedford Falls, not as it would be if he'd never been born,
2: but if he'd gone into business instead of politics.
1: Mr. Smith goes to Bedford Falls.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so because... All these different riders, all this different input. Mm. No surprise that there were a lot of changes so originally when mm. George saves Harry from drowning. They weren't sledging, they were playing ice hockey. Yeah, Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: the only ice hockey player that I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also in that script, they're playing on a lake on Potter's property. So George would hit the puck into Potter's yard and then Potter released the dogs on the kids. <laughs> Mr. Burns. The boys made a run for it and that's how Harry fell in the ice where George then saved him.
1: Right. Yeah. All right. I would have loved Potter skating around in his wheelchair with his sleds on. <laughs> Brilliant.
2: Sleds are like Chevy Chase and Christmas Vacation. Yeah, <laughs> <like fast>. <laughs> that's what Harry's like. Yeah. <laughs> Too far. Just blasted through the ground. Yeah. yeah. Um, also another change is the same to do with Mr. Gower when George tries to stop him sending out the poison and he tries to see his father. There was an mm-hmm. early draft where instead of going straight back to the drugstore after he gets kind of pushed out the office because he shouted Potter, he goes to see Uncle Billy instead. Billy right. lights a cigar mid conversation, throws the matchstick in the wastebasket, which catches fire. Billy yells for help. Tilly, who was George's cousin, <laughs> she runs in, puts the fire with a pot of coffee. It's all very home alone slapstick at this point. So <laughs> like a Marx <box>, Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really bizarre. And so because all that's going on, George decides to deal with the poison himself. Right. Yeah. Right,
0: okay. <laughs> I mean, Uncle Billy is the family idiot. So why yeah. George entrust him to do anything, let alone handle $8,000 on Christmas yeah. Eve is beyond me.
1: He's a poor <laughs> judge of character, isn't he, he hates <laughs> Sam Wayne, right loves Billy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, speaking of Billy, actually, there's a scene earlier on where it sounds like he stumbles into some trash cans.
2: Yeah. And
0: What actually happened was a crew member dropped the tray of props just after Thomas Mitchell, who played Billy, walked out of the shot. And when we hear Billy off-screen shouting, I'm
2: all right! I'm all right!
0: Yeah. That was improvised by Mitchell off-screen. Yeah. And that's true. why you see, see what smile. And yeah. Capra used that take in the final cut and gave the crew member who dropped the props a $10 bonus from improving nice. the film. Improving oh, the sound
1: design, from him, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> fired everyone else to give that guy time. bucks yeah? see, he's not a real bastard, <laughs> is he? <laughs> and there was another original draft where actually Potter isn't in it at all. But then oh. there's another version where Clarence confronts Potter at the end for what he's done to George, which I think wow. would have been great. I would have loved to have seen that. I would have loved yeah, to have seen that. Yeah,
0: that would have been good. Potter like, giving the dressing down by Clarence. Would yeah, have he been kicked
1: the door open with his shotgun, and he's like, guess who's got the wings now, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> and then blows him away. That's the Frank Cross version, is it? The Frank Cross <laughs> version. <laughs> <laughs> I want it run every hour on the hour. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And then also one final draft version had George Feigen's evil doppelganger, which ended in the death of evil George what? Bailey when he gets thrown off the bridge. <laughs> which wow! What, like uh, Superman, yeah, Superman three, yeah,
0: Superman three, yeah, Superman yeah. three, fighting in the scrapyard, yeah, like, unshaven, drunk George Bailey,
1: yeah, <laughs> the slightly darker suit. <laughs>
0: Well, because there were so many names involved in the final screenplay, the screenwriters' arbitration committee had to get involved. Hackett and Goodrich wanted Capra and Joe Swirling's credits taken off the script entirely. And Capra agreed to Swirling being removed, but not himself, which was nice of him. (laughs) So that's why the screenplay is credited to Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett and Frank Capra, and it says additional scenes by Joe Swirling. And Joe Swirling never spoke to Frank Capra again
2: afterwards.
1: When you read them credits though, they're just on that scroll with the lovely music. you just yeah, like, these yeah, guys yeah. fucking love each yeah, other, don't they? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was being so harmonious, right? Yeah, yes.
1: little Santa Claus on the top.
0: When you know the story, the <laughs> subtext yeah. of that additional scenes by... Yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> just scenes by really this little scenes by this son of This
0: So, some trouble with the writing of It's a Wonderful Life, it seems then. Disagreements and fallouts, but I don't think any of that shows in the final film. No, it definitely
1: works.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A Hollywood legend directing things on It's a Wonderful Life, and the same can be said for the cast. Five Oscar-winning actors in the cast, and we're going all in on two of them. So, who are you starting us off with, Westy? Who do you think?
1: Absolute. It's the only person I love more than Viggo Mortensen and Lord of the Rings. This guy is just flawless, is. you know, you're gonna fall in love with him immediately, aren't you? Doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey in this is just incredible. His performance is just incredible. I, mean, I might cry now just talking about how good he is. It's so authentic. It's fantastic. And what he brings to it is everything everything yeah. anyone else in this role it's a failure it yeah. just is it's it's that important a role from you know what just these opening lines of just oh no 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 i,
2: I oh, want a big one, one.
1: and you just not <laughs> oh, great you're in with him you know and <laughs> and he just is and when he loses his temper you kind of just want to get a hold of him just be like mate you know i'm yeah you're, you're actually within your rights to feel like that i totally agree <laughs> yeah. with you yeah. it's, it's 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 his best performance it's one of the best performances i've ever seen by anyone ever well,
0: Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and
2: over again. Now stop it,
1: stop it! I'll never, ever, ever get tired of it. I think it's just a performance that's just universal and absolutely timeless. Everyone can relate to Jamie Stewart in this. That bit, when he's walking with Mary and she's just in a dressing gown, yeah, it's a very, very interesting, interesting situation. situation, and you just yeah. think, oh, what a sneeze! But when the he delivers that, line, you go, yeah, it is actually. Yeah, what we're going to do? Maybe I could sell tickets. You're just kind of with him all the way through it. It's just a beautiful performance. It's so heartfelt. It's so watchable. It's so fantastic. He just blows me away every time I see it. I can't believe how good he is. He's mm-hmm. just incredible. And Capra also took inspiration from a famous figure at the time when creating George. There was a guy called Amadeo Giannini, who was a banker who started the Bank of America. And Capra, who was impressed with him and his humility, is partly based George Bailey on him. Now I can't imagine somebody associate with the Bank of America being high up is going to be a sweetheart. <laughs> I can't, I can't see that happening at all. Maybe when he kicks off, that might be it. But yeah, yeah. you know, that's Capra's writing, isn't it? Just takes what he
0: wants. <laughs> yeah, rock me, Amadeo. Should have gone there. <laughs> by I agree, Wesley. I think it's one of the great Lee performances by Stewart. Surely, yeah. obviously, it's helped by the film because it's massive. But it's a huge performance from Stewart. Yeah, people will be watching James Stewart as George Bailey forever, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But he might not have even played George Bailey because, like Capra, Jimmy Stewart enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War II, mm. and while the war was going on, RKO were writing the greatest gift, the original title of It's a Wonderful Life. And they had a huge name earmarked to play George. Do you know who that was? Don't care. (laughs) 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 It was Cary Grant.
1: Oh, right, really? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think
0: he would have been great, to be fair, but you can't change it.
1: Nah, too suave, he would have been too suave. He wouldn't lose his cool
0: like Jimmy Stewart does. Yeah.
2: My Dudley!
0: And when Cabra came in as director, he briefly considered Henry Fonda as George, But really he only ever wanted one man and that was of course Jimmy Stewart.
1: So Capra met with Stewart in the early restaurant and Capra told him the whole story of It's a Wonderful Life. But at the end Capra himself actually said, Well this doesn't really sound too good, does it? So <laughs> But then Stewart replied, Frank if you want me to be in a picture about a guy who wants to kill himself and then an angel comes down named Clarence and who can't swim and I save him, when do we start? <laughs> Which is great. And I also heard as well that Lionel Barrymore had quite a uh, hand in getting him involved. And he said, you've got to play this. And yeah. right. there you go, lo and behold. Yeah. Well, praise be for Lionel
0: Barrymore, if that case. Absolutely.
2: Nice yeah. guy yeah. off screen. Yeah.
0: Well, after the war, James, do you want to actually been working in his family's hardware store in Pennsylvania? Amazing. Imagine that you go to the shop yeah. for some screws, and Jimmy Stewart's serving you.
1: <laughs> yeah, like Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a keg of
2: beer. Yeah, and did you know Blue Abondi, who plays Mar Bailey, she actually mm-hmm. played James Stewart's Mar five times on screen. So, oh, really? <laughs> the vivacious lady of Human Hearts, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, this, and then in the Jimmy Stewart show, and, and up until her death in 1981. James Seattle would always call her mom,
1: which is lovely of him. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. Too many kisses on the lips for me though in this. Oh moment. that that is a bit weird. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <really> <laughs> <good. Yeah. laughs> Another great fact about Stuart as well, you know that scene on the honeymoon where they see that the, the building and the loans getting overrun, they've got that $2,000, mm. and there's a great actress there called Ellen Corby and she asks for $17, but it was actually her idea to say, well, I'm just going to ask for $17.50, and nobody told Stuart about it, so when it was her turn to do it, she came up to the desk and he thought it was going to be $17.00. Well, could I have $17.50? And then when he kisses her, it's like a real reaction to it. He's like, oh, God bless you. And I thought she was absolutely fantastic. One of my favourite bits in the film, actually. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I love that bit. One of the most heartwarming parts in the film, which is saying something. Tom, though, the guy who demanded $242 when he clearly didn't know when he had that much. No, Tom, just enough to tide you
1: over into the bank. I want $242. And then his his account's still open. Yeah. 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 (laughs)
2: And Ellen Corby, who, as you say, plays Mrs. Davis, she went on to play the Grandma in the Waltons. Do do you remember that? Do you remember the Waltons? Oh, right. Just just about, yeah. Yeah, Um, And and she won three Emmys for that, actually.
0: Really? Wow.
1: Mm.
2: Very good. And Matt, well, aside from Ellen Corby, which other cast member are you going to talk about? Well, I'm going to go for Mary Bailey, obviously, because, look, right, I've got so much sympathy for George. Yeah, we'll go. <laughs> yeah, we'll go. <laughs> well, no, right, it needs to be said, I've got so much sympathy for George in this film. He deserves so much more than he gets. But, Donna reading this, I do want to say to him, George, have you seen who you're married to? Nah, life, life is not that bad, mate. You could be doing a lot worse. When he first
1: sees her in the school, that oh. shot when she looks up, yeah. I could just kill someone yeah. to get in there. <laughs> I swear <laughs> to God.
2: <laughs> it's not quite up there with Grace Kelly's intro and up, but it's not far off. It's up there. Um, and just just as a performance I think she's really, really good and I think she stops Mary from becoming like quite a generic love in which she could have been and she makes sure James Hute doesn't totally dominate the film. I think she brings a lot to Mary. Like when she stands up to George and tells him to leave on Christmas yeah. Eve. George,
1: why must you
0: torture the children? Why don't you
2: that's fantastic, that scene. That's really, really good. And like Stuart, she's just got to do a lot of different tones in this film. She's got to do the romantic scenes. She's got to do the really dark stuff. She has to do comedy. And she is very, very funny in this film. Like My favourite Mary scene of all is when she sees him walking down the street and she calls him into her house.
1: What are you doing?
2: And he is in a right grump. He uh-huh. just cannot be arsed with her, and she stucks Buffalo Girls on. And the way she starts singing along, and then it just dies. The... That's really <laughs> funny. And there's this amazing fact about it as well, which is that she grew up on a farm in Iowa, So Lionel Barrymore, who just sounds like a barrel of laughs, just like picking everyone up when they needed to be. <laughs> he, he challenged her to a cow milking contest on set.
1: <laughs> like a speed camel in <laughs> I think
2: so. Like, see, I don't know why they would have a cow on set. But she won, and she said it was the easiest $50 she ever made. Wow. 50
0: bucks, that's about $800 in today's yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, how patient is Mary in this film? I mean, obviously she is all the way through, putting up with George's shit left, right and centre. Yeah. But <laughs> even before we meet Donna Reed and see nine-year-old Mary, played by Jean Gale, she's got mm-hmm. the patience of a saint. She's there in Gawa's drugstore when George delivers the prescriptions and she sat on a stool. When George gets back, Gawa says the pill should have been delivered more than an hour ago. And Mary's still sitting there on that stool without a word of complaint, hasn't moved. George just <laughs> doesn't deserve her.
1: No way. No, man, he's like, help oh, you down. <laughs> yeah. Say <laughs> so brainless. You know. <laughs> at the time that she'd made It's a Wonderful Life, Dana Reed had already appeared in about twenty films, but never in a big star and role. As such, some of the names were considered to play Mary. It was Jean Arthur, mm. who cut Red worked with on Miss, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, obviously. That was his first choice. Mm. But she turned it down to do Broadway, to do Broadway play. Martha Scott, Anna Dovrak, and Olivia de Havilland were all considered. Wow. And Ginger Rogers as well. Right. But she turned it down because she said Mary was too bland. And I think maybe in anyone else's, shoes mm. she might have been. Yeah. She might have uh, And yeah. in her an autobiography years later, Rogers wrote, she said, foolish, you say." So, yeah, I think she might have regretted it, to be honest.
2: Yeah.
0: Imagine Ginger Rogers dancing next to Crazy Legs George at the school yeah. dance. Oh, <laughs> that, <I know. laughs> that Charleston contest.
1: <laughs> She'll be dancing on the water. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I've already mentioned the kiss between George and Mary when they're on the phone to Sam Wainwright and yeah. George has turned down his drop offer. That was all filmed in real time. So there was one unit directed by Capra who was filming James Stewart and Donna Reed. And on a different set, at the same time, the second unit was filming Frank Albertson, who played Sam, and they were genuinely on the phone to, to each other. Oh, that's
0: cool. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. all single take, isn't it? Fantastic.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's great watching that when you know that was the case.
1: Yeah, yeah. the blocking is incredible as well on that scene with way the way the music goes from diegetic to the non diegetic. The wind just smashes the record, it finishes. Yes.
2: Girls come out to me.
1: Yeah, It's great. really Tarantino, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Brilliant. Yeah. laughs>
0: they hadn't rehearsed the kiss either because Capra wanted it to be spontaneous. So that take that we see, that was the first take that they did when they were yeah. recording wow. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the cast then, there is a bigger cast and it's a wonderful life. Mm. And we're going to mention Henry Travers as Clarence a little later on, but yeah. in those two leads, some real star quality and their most well-remembered films today, I think. Oh, absolutely. Def- yeah, definitely, yeah. It's a wonderful cast.
2: <laughs> Lovely.
0: There's a few famous scenes in It's a Wonderful Life, to say the least, so quite a lot to choose from in selecting our highlights.
2: Yeah. So which are you going for, Matt? I've gone for when George and Mary walk on home after the dance because I think it's a really important sequence because it sets up so many payoffs for later in the film, you get the introduction to, to what's gonna become their family house. Mm. You have that speech from George.
0: Mary, I know what I'm gonna to do tomorrow and the next day and
2: next year and a year after that. He's such a dreamer and that is quite tragic in retrospect because you watch this film, you think, he's not gonna to get to do any of that and all that energy yeah. ambition is gonna to come to
1: nothing and I think it's important that that gets it up there. It's good as well because it, sh- it shows his intelligence because you know that swimming pool under the floor that was yeah. his idea?
2: Yeah. Uh, putting a pool under this floor is a great idea. He's actually yeah.
1: doing it without being yeah. trained to do it. Mm. It's great. Yeah, brilliant.
2: He's just natural at it, isn't he? And yeah. it, it's a really important scene as well because it establishes that relationship between George and Mary so quickly. Like straight away, you invested in them. What I really love about it though is they're just talking, not about anything important, nothing, you know, putting the world right or anything like that. They're just getting to know each other. And I think, obviously, because this is the 40s, you can't have anything too suggestive on screen. But I still think it does a really good job of putting across, like, the instant attraction these two have with one another. They're both clearly head over heels for each other already. Hey. Hey, Mary. And it's all completely believable, even lines of dialogue, which might look a bit enough on the page.
0: You want the moon? Just say the word, and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down.
2: I don't know anyone else other than James Stewart who could take something a bit corny like that and give it so much sincerity and belief and make it work. Mm -hmm. And what's also interesting is that when Mary throws that stone through the window of the abandoned house, Caprit hired an expert marksman to shoot out the window on cue. But Donna Reed said, no, no, I'll, I'll play baseball in high school. Let me do it. So she did it herself without any help.
1: Yeah, there's a round of applause from the crew as well was <laughs> yeah. awesome that? Yeah, yep, brilliant. yeah
0: first take as well she did on the first yeah. take yeah, yeah. <laughs> hell of a phenomena don't I read <laughs> yeah. well it comes from Milton that dark I'll it. tell you, <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. you got here, I got there <laughs> <laughs> so the film spans 26 years 1919 to 1945, and over the course of it, Donna Reed plays Mary between 18 and 35. Donna Reed herself was 25 at the time, so that works really well. She's always believable as Mary. No way, though, can almost 40-year-old Jimmy Stewart pull (laughs) off playing 21-year-old George. (laughs) Look at those clothes. He looks outrageous. Beanpole. (laughs) It is brilliant, though, but for my highlight, I'm talking about probably the most famous sequence. What we've all been waiting for. Clarence is in there, and this is where it all goes. Pretty Charles Dickens in the Christmas Carol, as Clarence shows George what Bedford Falls would be like if he'd never been born. Seeing old Maid Mary, Mar Bailey's boarding house, how Potter's taken over the town, is really seedy and grim. It's all brilliant, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of Potter, him discovering the money and deciding to keep it, knowing full well what could happen to George, is diabolical. He looks the part as well. The Scrooge influence is obvious. I think he's got a very Alistair Sim look about him as Scrooge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. But but in real life, though, apparently, Lionel Barrymore had a really pleasant demeanor, like a lovely man. So Frank Capra spoke to his makeup team and told them to create a look influenced by American Gothic, the famous painting, which you can kind of tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Henry Travers, who plays Clarence, is really good as well.
1: Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. He's got the IQ of
0: a rabbit. According to Joseph, which is (laughs) brutal, especially coming from a saint.
1: (laughs) It's true, (laughs) isn't it? It's
2: fantastic. Even a saint isn't got no patience for him. The patience of a saint. (laughs) Trying to order that drink in the the bar. I was
0: just thinking uh, of a flaming rum punch.
2: So, yeah. rum punch. <laughs> oh no, it's too cold, it's not too cold for that. Yeah. Cold yeah.
0: And Travers plays him with this really childlike simplicity and wonder, which mm-hmm. is perfect for Christmas, obviously. Only thing missing in this sequence is Clarence hitting George in the face with a toaster. topped it right off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and... Take him to Harlem. <laughs> <laughs> and did you know where Henry Travers is from? No. He's, he's like our neck of the woods, isn't he, originally? He's from Prudhoe, yeah, so oh, right really? yeah, yeah,
0: so Clarence is a Geordie.
1: Well, I. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and in Pottersville, I've got to mention it because it's probably my favourite scene, definitely my favourite line in the film, is where George wants to go to Bailey Park, but it's where the cemetery is now, and that's where he finds Harry's grave, because mm. yelling at Clarence, you know, Harry Bailey went to war, he won the Medal of Honour, he saved the lives of every man on that transport. And it's when Clowns just shakes his head at him.
0: Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry.
2: That every time just sends a shiver down my spine. I mean, the delivery by Travis is exceptional. And it's just the whole point of the film, isn't it? You don't know the effect you have on people. You've just mm-hmm. got to trust that you do, and it's a good one. It looks like it's a like a universal horror film, the way it's lit. It looks incredible. The howling wind, the music, yeah. Absolutely, my favorite scene in the film. I think
1: it's brilliant. Old Pottersville is, if it's a film noir, yeah, it's dark, it's so dark. Mm -hmm. When he goes back to the house, and Burton earlier standing in that doorway in the backlit by the car light, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite shots of all time. It's just, yeah, it's exceptional. Yeah,
0: that scene in the grave as well, surely an influence on Back to the Future part two when Martin visits George's
1: grave, exactly the same, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, Biff, that's Pottersville, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all there. Yeah, and there's that great moment when he's in Martinis and he's breaking down and Walsh is next to him and he don't know it's Walsh. And, and it's just this beautifully nuanced performance from from Stuart where there's no real dialogue and he's just praying. And there is a wide shot that you see and it shows kind of the whole bar. And Capra was just so taken by that whole performance. that He's like, mm-hmm. we need a close-up but they didn't shoot a close-up, so what he did is he actually punches in on the negative and blows it up, which is why it looks a little bit more grainy and less Crazy. quality than the wide shot does, but who well, cares? It's yeah. fantastic. It's really, Some yeah.
0: serious acting chops from Theo out there, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's unbelievable. Yeah. I like it later on in the bar when it's turned into Nick's bar, and Nick's in charge, and he's like,
1: "Don't you two pixies, go through the door or out the window!
2: <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Get me, you wings. wings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, brilliant sequence, all of it. But what's your highlight, Westy?
1: It's the highlight that is just—it just makes the film. It's the end. I would like to think that everyone who's watched this in the last 80 years, every flake of snow is everyone's tear who's watched this. It's going to be Niagara Falls, worldwide. <laughs> Niagara Falls, Frankie Angel. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. You—you you feel the same as he does exactly the same like you wouldn't care if you went to prison at that point there's just no there's no troubles at all and i think everyone understands that it's just so beautifully played out and then mary comes in and she puts the feelers out and everyone just rallies around i mean she basically creates the best kickstarter ever <laughs> <for> the- <laughs> for- and it's just brilliantly done the way they come in and when billy starts emptying that money out mm. you just that's it I'm gone. It's like, fuck, this is so good. (laughs) It's just so emotional. Everyone's just laughing, and it's just everyone's just there, and it's the community that he builds. And the bit that gets me is that Bert went to pick up Harry from the airport. I got a telegram and everyone's running around. He's gone home to get his fucking accordion. <laughs> 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 he knows there's going to be oh, this is going to be a fucking party. So like, I've just seen him on the bridge. He's lips bleeding, but he's over the moon. I'm getting me fucking accordion for this. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. class. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. James, who like gives that line? Every
2: time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings.
1: But it's when he goes, you know, at a boy
2: clown. Oh. oh. I love it.
1: Oh, fuck, now! <laughs> this is a Christmas gift from a very dear friend of mine. Oh, it's, that's a bit for me. Oh, it's yeah. just, oh, fucking, of course it is. What's
0: amazing is that we know that George and Clarence have known each for about three hours, but we totally yeah, yeah. buy that they're dear friends now. Because, yeah, oh, he, he totally, if,
1: he, yeah totally. if he sees them again, that's, he's yeah. just like, yeah, thanks for the wings. Like, you know, yeah. he, and he's just got this such a sincerity about it, and it's so beautiful. But on that theme, the audio theme that we get throughout the film is that the sound of bells, so the intro music has bells. see so bells on the Christmas decorations. You've got the Liberty Bell at the start. We hear a lot of cash registers, telephone ringing. There's a bell on Potter's desk. The bell of St. Mary's is playing at the local cinema. There's loads of references. And going off watch George's daughter says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. There's a total of 42 angels that get their wings throughout the course <laughs> of the film, because we hear 42 bells. If you don't cry at the end of this, then you're probably dead. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, George Bailey, running through the streets of Bedford Falls, shouting Merry Christmas to everyone, is about as Christmassy as you
1: can get.
2: Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building alone!
1: We've all done that, pissed when it's snowing. (laughs) He's running down down King Street on (laughs) Northumberland Street. (laughs) Ah, Merry Christmas, HMV!
0: (laughs) (laughs) But we see more of Bedford Falls at this point, and it all looks great. And it was all a set which is impressive. It took two months to build the set, and at the time it was one of the biggest that had ever been made. It covered four acres, included 75 stores and buildings, a working bank, a main street, a factory district, and a residential and slum area. And the main street was 300 yards long. And they also transplanted 20 oak trees, and for the snow scenes, 3,000 tons of shaved ice. 600 tons of plaster and about 6,000 gallons of chemicals, and then pigeons, cats, and dogs, and some other animals were allowed to roam the set to give it a lived in feel. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) must be a cow there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And pretty much everything we see is a set the frozen lake that Harry falls through at the start, Mr. Gower's drugstore where young George works, the bridge that George almost jumps from, all sets.
2: Yeah, looks fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and also. Another way this film innovated something was snow because snow on film before it's a one of life was always done by painting a load of cornflakes of all things white and then just drop yeah. them onto a scene. <laughs> but whenever a film did this, obviously they made so much of a loud noise with all the crunching that any dialogue had to be dubbed in later. But Capra didn't want to do that, he wanted to record the sound life. So, so what they did said was they basically invented a new effect from scratch, which used soap, water, and foamite which is what they use in fire extinguishers, and they mm-hmm. pumped 6,000 gallons of it through a wind machine to create the effect of snowfall, and it was so revolutionary. They won a special Oscar for this invention.
1: You can see, though. You know when he gets Clarence in the water and he's dragging yeah. him along? It looks yeah. like that bit in Mrs. Doubtfire where he puts his face in the cake.
0: <laughs> 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 Hello, <dear. Yeah>. <laughs> 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 well, speaking of food as I always like to. Yeah, of also course. in that famous final scene, George is holding his daughter, Zuzu, and mm-hmm. Zuzu was named after a brand of biscuits that were popular in the US in the 40s, which is all why right. when George says that, he says, Zuzu, my little ginger snap, how do you feel? I'd have probably called her chocolate
2: hobnobs, but <laughs> Zuzu would <laughs> have called her, call her like kebab meat and chips. <laughs> <laughs> Just call her Donna instead. Easier. That's why Donna reads in yeah. there. <laughs> Figured it all out. And also, there's one narrative thread the film doesn't tie up, which is what happens to Potter at the end, because we never find out what happens to him for taking the $8,000 if no. anything happens at all. Yeah. And that's really interesting, actually, because at the time, films had to operate under what was called the Hays Code, which said that antagonists in movies, villains, whatever, they had to either be punished or repent for their actions at the end, which Potter right. never does. So as far as we know, Potter gets away with that money scot-free. Well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that point at the fact that he doesn't, and I think one of them is an emotional punch where, you know, when Harry comes in and says, <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Which is all Potter wanted to be. Yeah. But he's yeah. the yeah. richer in more ways than financial. He's got yeah. nobody on his side. He sits by himself on Christmas Eve. He's already lost. He's on his way out. So it doesn't really matter what's happened. You know where the future is. It's not about where you've been. It's about where you've gone. I think the end of the film is. I think yeah. that really works.
0: Yeah, I think Potter is one of the most underrated antagonists we've ever had. He never really yeah. gets oh, mentioned. Yeah, yeah in Great Antagonist list. Oh, he's, he's brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. When he's yes. like, oh, as a member of the board, I'm going to
1: ring yeah. the police. Yes, yeah. Yeah, go, <laughs> yes, go, yes.
0: brilliant. I think just as an idea, the idea is that he's like Scrooge before the ghost have visited him, and he's the bad guy. That's a great idea.
1: Yeah. And when he turns him in that carriage at the start, he's his introduction. Yeah. yeah. It's like, who's king? that, a king? Like, what yeah. the fuck are you <laughs> 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 There was a bit of a problem that Capra had to deal with during production, though, even though the film is set at Christmas. It was filmed in the summer months. And California I was going through a heat wave, like California as well. Mm. And at the time, so so hot that at one point, Capra had to give the cast and crew a day off to recover. I mean, you can't tell at all. No. It looks but, freezing like, cold. You know, it does look freezing cold, but it looks brilliant. But like, yeah. during a heat wave, you know, you, yeah. it should have suffered massively for that.
0: So when George is running around shouting Merry Christmas, it's snowing, but there's certain shots where you can see sweat glistening on Jimmy Stewart's face because it was actually mm. boiling hot when he was filming it. Yeah. yeah. Just beads of happiness. Relief (laughs) (laughs) So some big scenes there as our highlights And when you're talking movie moments Is there a better feel good movie ending Than this one
1: No No.
0: Westy You first please It's a wonderful life Is it a Christmas cracker or a
1: Christmas turkey well, it's anything but a turkey. I mean, I'm going to be very, very brief. I've said everything I wanted to say. I'll never get tired of it. I'll never not introduce this film to anybody, ever. Um, it's just one of them jewels in the crown of why I really, really adore cinema and mm. why I really adore escapism cinema and what it brings to it. It's always uplifting. It's never tiring. It's never clichéd. I will never, ever bore of it. It's an absolute bona fide 10 out of 10. Whew! Wonderful
0: score. mm <laughs> And I get it. I mean, this is more than just a great film. And it is a great film, but it's the Christmas classic. The definitive Christmas film for me. Not my favourite Christmas film, but objectively, undoubtedly, I think, the best Christmas film the message and theme of the film, we talked about kindness, helping others, is standard Christmas fare, but It's a Wonderful Life's Exploration of that message is way deeper and more thought-provoking, I think, than what you get anywhere else in any other Christmas movie. I'd say it's the most artistic Christmas film, and the best Christmas film still, many decades later. That's some achievement, and I watch it almost every Christmas, and it never grow tired of it, so I also have to go top marks and give it 10 out of 10.
1: Yeah, it's one of the best Christmas films
0: that doesn't need Christmas. Yeah. Well. yeah,
1: definitely. Me,
0: yeah. And to finish on it, it's a wonderful life. Mm. It's a wonderful man. Matt oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> your final words and score for the film, please? Yeah, I mean to have that debate is this the best Christmas film of all time. That to me is putting it into smaller box. It's yes. just it's one of the greatest films of all time. Incredible performances from everyone. Reed, Barry Travis, and with Jimmy Stewart That is quite possibly my favourite performance of all time by anyone. That to me is just as good as acting gets. And the concept is so beautifully explored and people who maybe don't know this film that well get a bit dismissive and think, oh, it's just sugary sweet, isn't it? No, it's not. It's really dark. It's really bleak at times. You know, George will end up stuck in Bedford Falls for the rest of his life, but there's more important things than that, which is why you do get to that end and you know, like Westy, Niagara Falls every time for me at uh-huh. the end of this film.
0: Niagara Falls, Frankie Angel.
2: It couldn't possibly be anything other than 10 out of 10 for this. Lovely.
0: So that brings us a Wonderful Life, in with a score of 30 out of 30. And there we are. Happy Christmas, so boys is over, apparently. And so is this episode. <laughs> If you liked it and what we do in general, please support us on Patreon. Becoming an ATRM Patreon will get you access to benefits such as bonus episodes of The Cutting Room and also access to our archive of podcasts, which are over 200 hours worth in total. And the podcasts are also available on our website. Mainly, though, Becoming a Patreon will allow us to carry on making videos and make more of them. And also... It's
2: Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles.
0: That's all for now, though. We will be
2: back, so please come Back next time, yes, yes please, please do, guys. Have a nice Christmas, everyone. I mean, I'll see you some bells, yeah. I think so. Yeah, uh, oh, I think some angel cement has got its wings. Yeah, <laughs> must That's be. nice. Yeah, dad, look at her.
1: If you don't cry at the end of this, then you're probably dead.